Hi there, everybody, um, and welcome to another edition of Shaky's Cricketing and Sports Journeys. Um, another big guest lined up for you today. Uh, somebody I'm very fond of, had the, had the pleasure of working with on a one-to-one basis, um, and we can touch on that a little bit later. But I'm joined today by um, ex-county cricketing legend, gritty opening batsman for, for the famous Warwickshire cricket team, as well as a world-renowned coach. I'm joined today by uh, Mr Andy Moles. How are you, sir? I'm very good. Lovely to see you again, Shaky. It's great, it's great to it's great to have you. It's great to have you. Now, just before I go forward, I mentioned that you worked with uh, with War- you played for Warwickshire very successfully. But to give an idea of the teams that you've coached around the world, and um, to name a few: Hong Kong, Kenya, Scotland, Northern Districts in New Zealand, New Zealand national team, um, and in latter uh, the latter stage of your your coaching career, you've worked for many years now with the Afghanistan cricket team, and these are all things that I want to talk to you about today as well as some recent challenges that Andy has faced in his life. Um, and we will talk about that later on in the episode. So I want to take you all the way back. I'm going to test your, your mind today more than your memory. Take me back to your childhood, where you were born, where you grew up and your family. So, well, I was born in uh, 1961 in Solihull in Birmingham. Um, moved around a bit with my father's job. He worked um, for Dunlop. Uh, in the tyres and associated with the uh, tyres on the aircraft. So we, we moved um, from Birmingham to Lancashire and lived in a place called Freckleton, which is close to Blackpool. Uh, we were there for a few years, then moved back down to Coventry, where I did my uh, senior school education. Lived in Coventry for until I was 2021 and then moved to Birmingham which I really say my cricket uh, life took off there. But my first cr- cricketing, uh, I didn't play cricket at all until I was 15 years of age. I didn't play any, any club cricket. I didn't play at school. I didn't play any. My, my, I was going to be a footballer. That was my um, sort of future. I played uh, for Lancashire Boys for a while. And I was associated with Preston North End and um, some other clubs who were interested in me. And then unfortunately I broke my, it all comes down to the, to the left ankle. Everything I've had problems with my left ankle, which we'll finish off with. But I um, broke my, my left ankle playing rugby for school at Finham Park, a comprehensive school in Coventry. Um, and all the football clubs that were interested in me sort of said, no, you, you won't recover. So then I took up cricket at the age of 15. Um, got into the, the Coventry schools, under 16 team, and then joined... Um, Kenworth Wardens, which is a, a club um, obviously in Kenilworth in, in Warwickshire, and then started playing cricket for Dunlop in the Coventry Works League at the age of 16, 17, where the great Fred Swarbrook, uh, sorry, um, Fred Gardner um, was my coach, ex-Warwickshire player. Very people say that I, I play exactly the, the same mould as he did. He was a gritty opening batsman, scored lots of runs, scored 100 against the touring Australians way back in the, in the 60s. Um, and he was my coach there. Um, and after playing uh, there, I moved to Moseley in the Birmingham League, and then my cricket took off there, really. Um, it really started because Warwickshire second team used to play in the Birmingham League on a Saturday afternoon. And after a year of playing against in the league, and I started to score runs, um, I thought I could play, but didn't really understand that maybe I could play be a professional. Until I saw how these Warwickshire players were playing in our league and suddenly thought, 
I'm as good as these guys. I can take these guys on. And that's really when my passion ignited. Uh, I still love the game, but I didn't really understand that I could play um, professionally and, and be, be good enough to play for first-class cricket. So I tried to get into Warwickshire, but unfortunately couldn't really get a chance because uh, the, the staff players always played in the second team games. And I got one or two games last minute, sort of the night before. Will you please come and join us because we're short? And that all changed when uh, Dennis Amos, during his testimonial year, had a game at the Blackpool Festival against uh, Nottingham 11. And the day, the day before the game, Andy Lloyd broke his thumb. Um, and they needed somebody desperately to, come, to make up the 11 players because the second team were playing. Um, so I, uh, Gordon Lord, who's a great mate of mine, said to them, my mate will come and play for you, Dennis. He'll make up the numbers. So I had a phone call that night. The next day, got on the, in the minibus with the Warwickshire first 11, went up the motorway, scored 60-odd not out in the game. As I say, the rest is history. They got, I got offered a six-week trial in 1986. Um, yeah. And before the end of that six weeks, I was in the first team and I stayed there for 12, 13 years. Yeah. I mean, I, I never knew that. I mean, that's amazing. I mean, I... I started playing cricket more when I was like four or five years old and everything was kind of, I mean, I played a bit of football as well, not, you know, probably not, not as good a level as, as you did, but, you know, I was playing all the way through my childhood, all into my teens. For you to start playing at 15 amazes me because guys that make a county career and whatnot have been playing the game like all through their childhood. So it's quite amazing to see that you started that late and, yeah. and, and, what, you went, and what you went on to do now. You meant, you know, you, 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 so it sounds like you, you got that one opportunity, you, you impressed there, and you never looked back. Um, you know, you're known for being a, a really gritty opening batsman. And, and for those that don't know the word gritty, maybe means it's, you know, it's a fighter. You probably put a serious prize in your wicket, proper old school, first class cricketer. Um, you know, who did you, who did you, who did you open up with for most of your time at Warwickshire? I had numerous. I started off with Paul Smith, who was um, elevated up the order because there was injuries at Warwickshire. Um, and actually, to this date, we still hold a world record of five consecutive 50 opening partnerships in first class games. That's two and a half games, basically. Wow. To this day, it's still a world record. Um, so after him, Andy Lloyd was my opening partner for a while. And then from then on, there was one or two, but the, the people. Who I opened a lot with was uh, Roger Twos, Nick Knight, um, to mention just a couple really. Um, but, you know, opening the batting is about a partnership. They talk about quick bowlers uh, operating pairs. Yeah. Opening the batting is exactly the same. It's a, it's a very, um, it's a hard position to, to be in the side. You ne if you're playing well, you're never off the field. Mm -hmm. You know, you, if you think about it, you go out, if you bat for per long periods of time, then you have minimal rest, and then you're back on the field fielding, and then you've got to go back and bat in the second inning. So, um, you know, you've got to you've got to be my my biggest quality was uh, was really good mental strength and application to the to how the the team. And under um, I guess really the leaders, the two main coaches we, I had when I was there was Bob Cotton and um, Bob Woolmer. and the two of yeah, those really, under Bob Cotton really started off is they 
really defined what roles each individual had, had to play in the side for the side to be successful. And I've taken that on into my coaching roles, getting people to understand, you know, it's like a pieces of jigsaw. If you put, if you throw pieces of jigsaw together, if, if they meet together and they, they make a perfect picture, but you only need one or two pieces to be missing and, you, and your jigsaw just doesn't work. And a cricket team is exactly the same. So you've got to have good skills, both technically and mentally and physically. But it's the understanding. I mean, one of the, the greatest qualities I try and, and it can't, you don't achieve it in many cricket teams. I've achieved it in one or two, uh, probably three, four, actually. But it's, it's getting players to really and genuinely enjoy the success of their teammates. Unfortunately, you know, when you don't have players who are genuinely uh, glad when their teammates do well, you, you can never have team harmony. Yeah, it's get you know it's very interesting. It's something that I, I'm now you know I've been transitioning a little bit more into like you know trying to be a mentor to younger cricketers coming through now. And if I, if, I don't know how you feel, you still work with a lot of young cricketers, but I feel it's getting a bit worse. I feel like the new generation don't seem to enjoy their mates' success, and yeah. I think the beauty of enjoying your mates' success can give you so much pleasure. Um, you know, and it can and it can make your team so much like you say so much more powerful. Um, and that Warwickshire team that you played in, Mola, that seemed to have all of that. I mean, you seemed to be a real family there. Very much so. We all knew um, how each other played and how we thought on the field. You know, we used to, like, when I was out and in the, in the dressing room, we'd look at how the game was developing and we'd, we'd discuss how, where we need to be, especially in one-day games. We need to be so many runs off this over to keep up with the rate. And we'd also, you know, get to a stage where we could actually nominate shots and how, how, the, how batters would react to situations. And more often than not, we got it right. Mm -hmm. No, you had a, a, such a successful, successful time. You, obviously, you, um, you played between 1986 and 1997 for Warwickshire. You scored 13,316 first-class runs, or sorry, just runs in general, with an average of 38.59. Um, you also had... Three seasons in in South Africa for correct me if I'm wrong, Greekland West. Greekland, yes, it's based in Kimberley. Right, okay, and you scored 1,989 runs at an average of 64.16. You also in your career had a top score of 230. So you know what I'm kind of leading into here is how did Andy Moles not play Test cricket for England? Um, there's a lot of people that, that suggested that uh, I should have had an opportunity. And there's at times in my career that I thought, you know, I could have got the nod. But when you think you know, for the majority of my career, there was Graham Gooch, Michael Atherton, Mickey Stewart, uh, Butcher, to name but four, all played over 100 test matches. And all of them were very successful at opening the batting. So yeah. opportunities were limited because, you know, other places in the batting order were up for grabs, perhaps, at certain times. But opening the batting, England were fortunate and had very strong, good opening batters. So that, that was an object that was in my way. There were, I've spoken to people at the end of my career that said that, um, so particularly when the West Indies were over um, on one of their tours, that I was actually uh, selected when Robin Smith was opening the batting. Okay. And Robin was struggling at the top of the order. And I think he opened for three test matches. And I'm told by people in the selection that they decided that, that Robin had one last chance and unfortunately he didn't do well in that test match, that I was, I was a leading run scorer in the country at that stage. They were going to give me the opportunity to play at Old Trafford. Mm -hmm. But unfortunately, um, the, the, week, 
the, before that test match, before they announced it, is I snapped my Achilles tendon playing for Warwickshire against Somerset. Oh, no. Oh, no. Uh, it just uh, was, was the way the cards are dealt. Um, I think that there may well have been one or two opportunities where I could have got, got a chance. But I look back on it with no bitterness. Yes, I'd love to have played. But, um, you know, I, the game, I've met some great people and I'm still involved in the game now. So the game in the end has been very kind to me. Yeah, no, it's um, it's good to hear you you speak in such a positive positive light on it. And yeah, you're right. You were surrounded by some seriously good players. I mean, imagine if Graham Gooch was around now, and this you know he's just what a phenomenal opening batsman. Um, going on from there, just before I finished, you played with some absolute legends at Warwickshire, like you know to name a few. Um, you know, Brian Lara was at uh, was at was at Warwickshire. You know, yeah. that, my absolute hero growing up, uh, probably many people's hero growing up. What was it like to share the change? you know, with a great man? He was certainly laid back and he was so ultra confident. Don't forget, in 94, when he played for us, um, it was, it was uh, it's the year he scored 500 runs um, against Durham. Um, but he, he was, um, he just scored the run. What you had to learn to do is you had to learn, for, learn to run very quickly off the sixth ball of the over. Because he did farm the strike. When he was playing well, he wanted as much as a, as a ball. And that was actually something quite difficult. And I, and I got used to it because um, I spoke to some of the Worcester boys, actually. Yeah. And, they, and I asked them, what's it like playing with Graham Hick? Because obviously he scored mountains of runs and, mm -hmm. and was a different class to, to the average county cricketer. And they said that the difficulty was, is when you were batting, the same as back with Brian, you, say you get drawn into trying to play at their tempo. Well, of course, you know, if I try and score at the runs at the same rate as Brian Lara, then I'd get out, caught behind, nick behind, because there's a, there's a difference in quality. And they were saying that the same with when they batted, I spoke to Tim Curtis, and he said that the thing he learned is that just to play at his own tempo and just let uh, Graham play at his, and that was good for the side. And, and I learned that at Warwickshire, you know, if he tried to, but it was at times you just sort of got drawn into trying to, to be um, as dominant as he was, which of course it wasn't very easy. Um, but he, he, one thing that Brian taught, I remember, told me, and I talk to my batters now, is he said to, he got all the players, we played at Lords in a four-day game, it was, it was very close to us, sort of pushing to, to win the county championship. And he sat with the top four batters, um, in uh, there was myself, Roger Tews, uh, Dominic Osler and Brian top four platters. So we, as we walked from the nurse ground back over the main ground to the dressing room to start the play, he sat us down on the, on the square and he said, right, all I'm going to tell you is you've got to find a way that you can keep yourself switched on and you concentrate because during the innings you get ebbs and flows of your concentration. You've got to find a way. And he says, my way, he says, is, was financial. He was sponsored so much run when he played for Warwickshire by different uh, sponsors. And that motivated him. He says, that motivates me. And I use that. He says, but you guys have got to find some way that what motivates you. And I straight away then used to imagine my two, my two boys who were probably four and, and one at that sort of stage. I used to imagine they were, they were sat in the stands watching me for every inning from there and I didn't want to let them down. And that really focused my mind and, and I became you know, even stronger mentally you know, to, to, to do the job that needed to be done. No, that's... that's, 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 that's... And a great, a great inspiration to, to have your, your children as your inspiration. That's, that's awesome, Mola. One other guy that you've with is also uh, the opposite end of the spectrum. 
uh, White Lightning, Mr. Uh, Mr. Alan Donald. How is it like playing with him? And how was how was net practice when you had to rock up in the morning to to have to have him steaming in? Yeah, well, you know, that's part of the, one of the things that uh, sort of put us in good stead. We had Gladstone Small, Alan Donald, Paul Smith, Tim Munton, Dermot Reeve, amongst others. So every time we had middle practice or we had um, nets, we were, when you went out into the middle, the, the opposing, yeah, they all had one, one or two bowlers, but they didn't have the same depth that, that we had. So you were, every time we practiced, and the one thing I've come to learn again in the coaching world is practice is only as good as if it's at match intensity. And when those guys are, are on and they're working hard at their skills, then it's a great theatre for, for me as a batsman to get my skills worked under pressure to make sure that I was mentally strong and, and technically right to go out and play in the middle. Yeah, no. So, you know, and especially if you were obviously striving to try and push for test cricket, having a bowler like that in your county gave you a real kind of, you know, eye opener of what you were going to come up against. Um, so, look, amazing, amazing, amazing side. Um, you were also once voted the best ever player not to play for England. I mean, we've touched on that already, but that just shows how highly regarded you were um, as an opening batsman and, you know, what a career you had with Warwickshire. Um, all good things come to an end. You're, you, you know, the playing days are, are short-lived. Um, yeah. And you, you, you kind of, I believe, retired from the game around 97, 98. Yeah, 98, I, I retired. 98. Uh, and, and you you decided to transition into a new stage of life. You had some great inspirations that you touched on for the coaching world, which were the, the late Bob Bulmer um, and the great man Bob Cottam. Um, did they help you with that transition period initially leading into coaching? Especially um, Bob Woolmer. Bob sort of said to me one of the winters, you know, when I was still playing, well, what are you going to do? Why don't you do your coaching courses now? So I did a lot of my coaching courses before I finished playing. Um, and he sort of pushed me to, to the challenge of accepting, trying to be a coach. Obviously, no, no idea that I'd, I'd go on to coach test-level test teams, etc. But um, the one thing that uh, he was always, you know, the one thing I've tried to do is look at the way he, he operated and the good qualities and, and how he went about preparing his teams and challenging. The one thing about Bob Warmer is he always challenged cricketers to get better. It didn't matter whether you were a senior player, a junior player, or, or a player who'd been playing for four or five years. Always get better, either technically, mentally, or physically. So, I mean, the one thing that the Warwickshire team sort of transitioned um, is that he brought the reverse, him and Dermot Reed brought the reverse sweep. We all practiced, one, one pre-season, we all practiced the reverse sweep because we worked out that the year before we'd had a, we'd had a poor season in one-day cricket, and it was something I can't remember. We, but the opposition spinners, whenever they bolded us, we only scored at something like 3.8 or 4.1 runs per over against spin. And that, that's an issue with a lot of cricketers. We all like the ball to come onto the bat. We're used to it. But when you have to score runs and rotate the strike against spin, it's a problem. I've, it's a problem with the Afghan team. I worked with them. And one thing he worked, out, worked on was manoeuvring the field to make it easier to rotate the strike. And we, uh, we worked on it is that by playing the reverse sweep, that's been the guy from... Uh, uh, Midwicket, they usually stood by the by the umpire at square leg. He used to come across to a 45 on the offside to stop the reverse sweep, which became easier then just to deflect the ball on the leg side for one run. And the following year, we we, we won one of the one-day competitions, and we went up to about 
5.5 runs per over uh, throughout the whole season. And it was just because we'd identified uh, we, we, we didn't rotate the strike. And the easiest way to do that was to open a pocket on the ground that we could get singles easier. And that was really what Bob was about. Him and Dermot looking at you know, simple ways uh, to make life easier, uh, risk-free cricket. Mm-hmm. No, that's really, really interesting to hear. You started your coaching career then, you went uh, back over to SA where you'd had a successful playing time and you yeah. played for Orange Free State. That's what right. You coached Coach Free State. Um, yeah, they, they had a great time. Of course, they were, they were captained by Hansi Cronier. Alan Donald was the, was the opening bowler. Nicky Boyer, the young uh, off-spinner, played for them. Um, Franklin Stevenson was the overseas cricketer uh, for them. Um, they, they had a very, very strong side, a very good side. And certainly that I learned an awful lot by, you know, Hansi um, was a great thinker of the game. Uh, and he helped me a lot. And a great tragedy when he lost his life. Uh, but all the other cricketers that were there. And the one thing about the Afrikaners um, in that, in that uh, part of the world... Their work ethic is is probably the best I've ever seen anywhere. They're, when you when you say to them we're, we're going to have a net practice at uh, four o'clock in the afternoon, they're all there at three o'clock doing laps of the ground, getting doing their own fitness work before the before the net practice started. They they were phenomenal in the, in the way they went about their preparation. So, so it sounds like that was quite an easy transitional kind of nice transition for you to go into with so much experience around. It was kind of. It was kind of you were spoiled almost as a coach there initially, just to kind of find your feet in the role. It was, but the, but you but you then learned for the first time that as a coach you're judged by other people's work. As a as a cricketer, when I went out to bat, I was in charge of my own yep. future. You know, if I if I had two or three games where I didn't get any runs, then I knew I had to dig in and get a score to keep my place in the side. Yep. When you coach a cricket team, and you can do as much preparation as you want, and it's still still applies today. When they go across that white line and that team starts playing, the amount of time, why are they doing that? We discussed we weren't going to do this. Why is he bowling now? We discussed that we weren't going to use him against this batsman or whatever tactics you decide. But it's like reading a book. You just have to turn the page and just let the story unfold until they come off at lunch or at the end of the day and you can just try and um, digest what's happened and talk. And, and that's really, for me, is the, is the art of coaching. It's not all about just telling people how to play for defensive or sweep shot. It's about applying the skills to the game as it unravels. And the best players are the ones who react um, best to as, as the game presents itself to them in any situation. 2001, Muller, you, uh, you took your first international role and you took on the, uh, the Hong Kong national coaching job. You know, how did that come about and how, did, how, how, how was that period for you? Yeah, well, that was in the winter because uh, it's... Uh, the South African season plays opposite to the normal hemisphere. So during the winter in South Africa, there was an opportunity to come at Hong Kong. We're going to the ICC, um, their sort of qualifying tournament. Yeah. Uh, they were looking for a coach to come in. And a friend of mine rang me and said, look, there's, this, there's an opportunity here. They want somebody for six weeks. Great opportunity to go and coach in a different environment, go to Hong Kong. And then the, the tournament was in Canada. So... I, I, I approached my employers in, in uh, Free State. I said, look, if I apply for this position, will you give me six weeks off without pay? Let me go and learn some, some more because there wasn't much going on. It's obviously in the midwinter in, um, in, in Bloemfontein. Yep. And as it happens, I applied for the job. I got given the opportunity. It was a great learning experience. 
No, that's 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 the first initial initial stages of going into that. Two thousand and three, um, you then took on another national team job. Um, you took on uh, the Kenya role. Um, you went over there. Um, it didn't last too long, only a year, and you decided to to quit the role due to what sounded like a lot of bickering between the board. Um, and just sounded like an all-round tough gig at the time. Talk to me about the experience of, of the Kenyan side. Yeah, well, at that time, Bob Warmer was uh, appointed as the ICC um, in charge of coaches and, and, the, and the, the, associate, the, the top associate teams. He, he looked after them and made sure the coaches were going right. So he approached me and said, after the World Cup in South Africa, where they come fourth um, in, in, okay. in South Africa, <clears throat> he said, look, you know, the way that they improve, they're going to they're, they're going to be the next test playing side. Please come and take them on for me. Look after them. They need to learn about. They need to get fitter. They need to learn about. Uh, as I was saying before, team harmony. Yeah. Uh, you're my man. Will you please come and do it? So I went there and took over. The, it was difficult. There's uh, very talented cricketers again, but mm-hmm. uh, they didn't quite get the message about being pleased for everybody's success. They were they're a team of individuals. And there was, and, and it wasn't their fault. They they had a fallout with the board over uh, finances that should have come their way after the World Cup. Um, I think without going into details, basically the they had they had agreement that any any monies that they won during the World Cup is that they would be allowed to keep it. Well, no way did anybody ever understand that because of political reasons, England didn't go to New Zealand. Uh, because sorry, England didn't go to Zimbabwe. New Zealand didn't go to um, Kenya to play games, so they got awarded points for games that were called off. Of course, they got to the semi-finals, and they had one great win. They beat Sri Lanka, um, which was a which was a good result. But because of other other things that were happening in the political sort of scene, they ended up finishing fourth. Mm-hmm. And of course, when they finished fourth, they actually got a huge amount of money. Yeah, They've got. For finishing fourth, now suddenly the board said, "No, no, no, no. We want some of that money now because yeah. we want to, uh, to yeah. put it." And, the, and but the thing is, the players had a signed agreement that no, any money is right because the barring those uh, political uh, things going on, they'd have finished. They wouldn't have got past the first round of games. So they've had a minimum, you know, maybe ten, fifteen thousand dollars. As it as it turned out, there was over a hundred, hundred and fifty, two hundred thousand dollars. I don't know the exact amount, but it was a huge amount of money. Now the players want. Now we want our money, but the board didn't want to give them the money. So then there were strikes that went on, um, and the the players had a fair grievance. I think at times that they went the wrong way about it. Striking, whenever we uh, had teams come to Kenya to play against us, the morning of the game they just go on strike. So you got India A, Pakistan A over there. Uh, we're about to play a tri series. The players turned up. I get a phone call at nine o'clock in the morning. Um, we're not coming to play today. We're going on strike because of play, which is, you know, they, they went away about it the way they thought they could bring maximum pressure to bear. Um, and it was a sad, it was a very sad situation. So it just sounds like you were never really able to do your job in that, in that time in Kenya. You were never really able to coach them because of all these other out, outside interferences that were, were going on. And these things happen sometimes and there's not really, a coach is not something you can really change or wave a, wave a magic wand. And that brought you into another national team coach, and this is where um, where I get to know the great the great Andy Moles. Um, you came over to sunny Scotland um, to to coach the Scotland national team. Um, how did the job come about? And you know, t- tell me about when you first came over, how you felt about things. 
Yeah, well, the job um, was advertised on the ICC website, and I emailed Roddy and said to him, uh, look, you know, I'd like to apply for the position. What's the chances? And he said, well, send, send your application and we'll see where it goes. Um, and, you know, I was very pleased to, to get the opportunity. To go, but it was only an eight-month contract because the, the role was to try and we, we had to go to Ireland for the, for the qualification for the World Cup in the West Indies. Yeah. And the ICC funding for my salary was only for eight months yeah. if we qualified. Yep. Then would be um, more the money would come in for the for the preparation of the World Cup, <clears throat> and then Scotland would um, would would extend my contract. Yeah, I had a great summer, thoroughly enjoyed it. I loved Edinburgh. Um, some real great friends I've still got from there. Um, really enjoyed the, the 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 city, although I still have many memories of of um, boys up there saying that how much they hate England and. And uh, they don't get on with the English and that sort of thing. But it was great. It, it was great banter. I, I thoroughly enjoyed it. Yeah. Uh, fortunately, at the end of the, we went to Ireland, and we won. One, we we won. We ranked number one. Yeah. Uh, side, ready to go to the West Indies. Um, and then just at the end of that summer, my contract was up, and we were going to negotiate a new contract. So I was out of contract, and Warwickshire job become available. Yeah. Warwickshire from my own side. I went to see Roddy. And, and, and Craig, the, right, the captain, and said, look, I'm going to apply for this position. I don't know if I'm going to get it, but I'm just letting you know. At that stage, Roddy came back to me, said, right, we'll offer you a two-year contract to go to the world. I said, great. And he said to me, no problem, and the board are happy. Go ahead and have your interview. We know you that uh, there you're only on an eight-month, you're only coming here for eight months. Right. And, of course, when I went there, there's a whole story there that they offered me the job, and then it didn't, didn't transpire. But then, unfortunately, the, there was a, a miscommunication. I don't know. As I say, so some of the senior players decided that I wasn't committed enough to Scotland because I'd applied for this Warwickshire job. So they decided that they didn't want me around anymore. So yeah. one thing I've certainly learned in my in my coaching career is you can only help people if they want to listen to you. Yeah. And if if you're not wanted as a coach, and we'll come on to talk about the New Zealand issue a little bit later. But yeah. one thing I've come to learn, and it's a waste of time fighting. But if, if the players, for whatever reason, don't want you as their coach, the best thing is just to pack your bags and just say, good luck, get on with it, and just walk away. Um, and, and that's what happened. Well, just, just on that, I would like to add a little part just in there before we go on and, and talk about other things. So, uh, Andy Moles, you came, to, you came to Scotland. I'll never forget, I was batting in a net practice in the Grange Cricket Ground. It was the first time you'd ever seen me play. Um, and, I, you know, I had a decent net. Um, and you, you pretty much gave me my, my, my early opportunities to come into the Scotland national team. Um, and then we went out to South Africa for what was one of the toughest experiences yet, one of the most amazing experiences I've ever had. Um, I've, got, I've got people like, you know, Richard Berrington wanted me to pass his best wishes on to you. Um, obviously you. myself, Richard Berrington, many of the other Scottish boys. You had actually arranged it that there was a good eight, nine of the Scottish boys. There was also a certain Owen Morgan that was part of that academy as well. Um, we had the coaches and yourself, uh, Bob Cotton, John Davidson from Canada, Mark, and, Mark Mark Lane. Lane, and Mark Lane as well, your good, your good friend. Too. And you know, my experience of that time will live on for the rest of my life. I learned so, so much from you. all the coaches. You were all fantastic. We had a, a real family out there. And you were, in, we were about to go to, I think it was Barbados around that time, just soon after it for a tour. 
and you know, me aside, and I was lined up to go. I'd had a great time out in South Africa. Things were going really well. You know, you talked about me really pushing into the national team, and all of a sudden, um, you know, a bit of player power unfortunately pushed uh, pushed you out, um, and and you know that was the end of your uh, your your time in Scotland. And you know, it's always saddened me. It's always saddened me because I always wondered if I'd got to be under you for a few more years, where my career may have gone. But listen, these things happen. Such is life. You I, can, I can just come in there just to give credit where credit's due. I then went on to coach New Zealand, yep. but the, about a year later, New Zealand came over for the T20 World Cup in, in England, yep. and, and um, there was a group of uh, associate players, of which there was three or four or five from Scotland, came and played against the New Zealand team in a warm-up game. Yep. And I thought, oh, here we go, because there was Craig, Smith, uh, the wicketkeeper, yep. uh, and, and two or three others. Um, and, you know, the game was just start, about to start. And I, I looked up and saw three or four of the, the Scottish guys walking across towards me. Now, I haven't seen them since this player power thing it happened. And I thought, here we go, what's going to happen there? Yeah. You know, and credit to them because they're, Craig is, is a very proud man and he's not a person to back down. Mm -hmm. And he came across with two or three of his teammates and said, look, you know, Molo, we got it wrong. We're sorry. Um, we we thought it, we read it the situation as this that you weren't interested in, in Scottish yeah. cricket because you applied for another job. They now understand and they wish me the best for the New Zealand. And we I shook their hands and genuinely I've I've not, not had a bad thought about Scottish cricket or them since then. That's so good. They, to hear. That's good yeah. to hear. I'm proud. I'm proud of those guys for doing that because I remember at the time it was good to hear your story on that because I never ever knew that and I thought it was maybe still a bit of bad feeling there. So. It's great to hear that that, that, that was mended. Um, you then moved on, um, took a co another coaching role, other side of the world now, um, uh, for Northern Districts in New Zealand. Now, That's you right. had a really successful time with them. You, you led them to a, a state championship. Yeah, we had a, a real good... So this is probably the closest I got a team to behaving like the Warwickshire team. They were led by, um, by Marshall... Um, uh, one of the twins, and he, and the, and we we got a senior player group together who were so into um, the way I believed the way I, I wanted the team to play and to behave on and off the field, mm -hmm. and uh, yeah, we won the four day competition, and, and really that was the most enjoyable time coaching a provincial time in my provincial team in my career. No, and that obviously got you recognised by the. Uh powers above of the national team and you took on the uh, the New Zealand national team job um, in 2008. What a big moment for you, Mola. Like that's the, you know, and, and your whole career up to date of coaching, that was the, the, you know, the biggest role you'd taken on. Exactly. Yeah. And it was, man, and I knew there was issues. I mean, they had a very strong senior player group. You know, you talk about Daniel Vittori, Mills, um, there was just so many of them. Um, McCullum, of course. Yeah. And they, they, the coach before me, John um, Bracewell, was a very strong coach that, that ruled the team with a rod of iron. And they wanted more say. And they were very strong characters, those senior players. Mm -hmm. um, they wanted to have more say in the team selection, more say in the way they practiced. And, they, and I was asked by the CEO to let them have that, that freedom. 
So, you know, my, my first opportunity to coach at that level, I said, okay. Um, but unfortunately, uh, the, I mean, ironically, the, uh, we had a very, very young side. Um, Ross Taylor, for example, had only played, I think, from about seven or eight test matches when I started. So it was a very young side. Um, Dan Vittori was, a, was an exceptional leader. He was a very good captain. Um, but he wanted more and more say, and, and the CEO told me he wanted to have more say in selection, more say in practice. And I, one thing I've never done since then is I said, okay, fine, if that's what he wants. But it ended up things were happening that I didn't really agree with um, in certain things, but I still thoroughly enjoyed the opportunity of working there. You know, my last job, last game I coached there is we played in a world final. We played in the, um, in Pretoria in the Champions Trophy, 50 over competition, and we lost. We lost a tight game against Australia, you know. And then after that, a month later, I was sort of shown the door, as it were, which I thought quite bizarre, really, since we just got to a world final, which they haven't done. Well, they, they did it in the last uh, last World Cup, but uh, I thought we were going in the right way. But again, as I said before, and it's something of mantra of. You can only um, work in an environment that wants you to be in that environment. If they, if they don't want you in the environment, you can't win. You can't change any ideas. You can't do your job properly. Best thing to do is just say, okay, good luck to you. Thanks for the opportunity, but I'm going to move on. Yeah. You kind of then took a bit of a, a kind of, you took a couple of years out the kind of, the big lights, you could say, um, which uh, obviously after having a test playing, test, coaching a test playing nation, um, you went and, and, and worked with a, a university for four or five years. Tell me, tell me about the setup and what that entailed. Yeah, well, to be honest, when uh, when I left New Zealand, I fell out of love with the game a little bit because I thought I was there doing the best I could, and we we're having starting to have success. But for whatever reason, um, I, I was out the door. So I came back here, and I, and I was there's University of the Western Cape is a is a um, predominantly a, a, an underprivileged coloured university uh, in Cape Town um, and an NGO there, uh, Life Skills for Sports Skills it's called, um, as a magnificent um, programme where they recruit or get the opportunity or give opportunity to aspiring um, academics that can't afford to go to university from the townships and things like that, but also play cricket. So... They're looking to give cricketers who, who, want to, who want to further their education. So we look for the mixture of uh, good cricketers, but also got, get university passes, but can't afford to go to university. So this programme um, helps, brings these players, these individuals together. They pay for their accommodation. They pay for their food. Um, they, it really is a social programme. Um, and it, I found it very uplifting and it got me to love the game again. Um, and I was lucky enough to sort of inherit a, a good side with some good leaders. Um, and again, they picked up on this mantra of enjoying everybody's success and they'd come a really close picture. And we won the, 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 the two competitions in Cape Town against some very strong sides here. Um, and really, once I got going there, then I left there to go to um, Afghanistan. Just, just on that, that must have, it sounds like it was a really rewarding kind of role and it took stripped back and away from like I said the big the big lights you must have seen some stories of some boys coming from the private backgrounds and stuff that were able to get careers and stuff it must have brought you so much so much pride in the role yeah I still keep in touch with a lot of those guys 
there's um, you know what there's about three or four of them over that period have gone on to play first class cricket. But it's not the cricket is important, but the main thing is getting them to. And this is one thing that I've certainly learnt is it's about life away from the cricket game. Good players are players that have a have a good quality of life and a and a, um, life skills away from the game. You know, all the best players I've been associated with are happy away from the cricket field as they are on the cricket field. And this really, this programme sort of confirmed all those thoughts to me. Um, and, you know, I really enjoyed working with the players. And it wasn't financially rewarding like all the other jobs, but spiritually um, and really just for me, for, for what I needed at that time after New Zealand, that was the perfect fit. Yeah, no, it sounds like it. It sounds like it because that leads you into your next coaching role, um, which is kind of, you know, seemed like at the time when I heard Andy Moses taking on the Afghanistan uh, coaching job, you know, watching from the outside, I was curious to see how it was going to go because I was thinking big cultural change, something completely different that you would have been used to. Um, obviously, Afghanistan were very early stages and making their way into kind of the, the international scene. So tell me, tell me about, tell me about how it all came about and, and how, you, how the early stages went. Yeah, well, um, my agent contacted me and said that they were looking for a, someone to do some batting coaching, just to go up there and, and help them um, ahead of the, I think they were about a year away from going to the World Cup. So I went up there, to, I was a little bit apprehensive, obviously, to, to go to Kabul. Um, and... You know, it's been well documented. My brother is, is uh, well established in the anti-terrorism world. Uh, works did work for the Met Police. He now is in Bahrain, working for the the, the Sheikh there uh, about anti-terrorism. But so we he was dubious about whether I should do it and gave me a lot of advice. Anyway, I, I, the challenge was just something I had to do. So I, I flew in there. Um, it was quite scary at times because you, yeah. the unknown. But it yeah. soon became apparent to me that the, the Afghanistan Cricket Board uh, looked after me very well and, and, and did everything they could to ensure that my safety was paramount. Mm -hmm. So I, when I was there, I saw that they had a real um, glut, uh, massive amounts of uh, talent. Um, and once I came away from there, then the, for, I don't know what happened, but they, they decided that they wanted to replace the, the national coach with me to go back. As, as head coach, they contacted me when I'd been back for about two months. I said, look, would you come back and would you accept the, the job as national coach? Mm -hmm. Which, you know, was a year out from, from the, the World Cup in Australia uh, and New Zealand. And there's no way I was going to turn down that opportunity to go to, go to the World Cup with, with this side. So, yeah, so I went back there and uh, worked with them. I was there for 18 months, I think, just under two years. Mm -hmm. um, and then when my contract was over, there was a, the, the, the security issues started to develop again, so I left. And then they, they enticed me back again about a year later, and I'm still there now. So just on, just on that, first and foremost, what a, they've got some talent there, Muller. I mean, they're, they're, it's, it reminds me of, like, um, I come from Pakistani background, and I know from going to the streets of Pakistan, you can just be driving, you can be driving, you know, walking along the road, and you can just see a kid in a street, and he's got... Amazing talent, you know, spin, it might be spin bowling. It might, what was it like for you to, to kind of, is that what it was like in Afghanistan? Was there just talent that you were just spotting everywhere? There's, you know, the thing is you have to dilute it, this problem, because there's so many, um, you know, as you say, you go to Pakistan, and in Afghanistan, it's probably a little bit worse that there's 
is that uh, with the war situation, it's hard life. A lot of the, the children, especially, are brought up in very tough circumstances. But cricket's their opportunity to try and get out and, and bring in some money for the, the family and, and that sort of thing. So cricket, cricket is, a, is, is, is a vehicle for them to, to, to provide for their family. I mean, you know, you talk about the, the Rashid Khan, who is a magnificent bowler and we've got other spin bowlers. But we, last year, we had a, um, a spin bowling camp and we asked just, just for um, wrist spinners, not, not off spinners or left arm spinners, just wrist spinners, so leg spinners basically, and Chinamen. Mm-hmm. We asked for um, the best quality, not, not just everybody, but good quality. We went out, I said to the, the, the junior coaches, bring in, let's have a spin ball and see what we got. There was 200, 200 of which I'd say at least 50 of them would be good enough to play first class cricket. Wow. They're just, they're, they're just everywhere. Batting, batting is, is a weakness because um, they all, I tell you what, they can hit fours and sixes all day long, but they, they, all they play is this tennis ball cricket, which you... Yeah, yeah tennis ball. ball cricket. And it's all about just hitting fours and sixes. So they're brought up on that diet. They don't understand, you know, for me, the, the, um, the success of batters or the best batters have a good uh, defensive technique and can rotate the strike. Everybody can hit fours and sixes. The thing is, can they bat for, for two hours, three hours, four hours in, in, in first-class cricket so that the, the Indians can stretch out? And that's the challenge we're trying to help our batters within Afghanistan at the moment. Mm-hmm. I mean, there was um, the last World Cup campaign. They, they seemed, again, just before the, the campaign started, there seemed to be some... I had John Mooney on, actually, recently um, yeah. on, a, on a podcast, and he talked about it, and he said it was one of the best experiences he's ever had to go out to Afghanistan. He obviously got, went out to work with Big Phil. Um, but he did say that the board still, there was some, you know, with the, the situation with the captain and whatnot, he reckoned if it had been a little bit better handled, they could have done a lot better at that competition. He said they should never have lost all the games. Yeah. Now, the team definitely underperformed. The, the, the change of captaincy obviously didn't ha- help the harmony of the team. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, it's a... Unfortunately, in cricket, why there's these politics, politics involved, I don't know. But in a, every sort of um, cricket environment I've been, I've been involved in, there's always something going on behind the scenes. Yeah. And fortunately, in Afghanistan, um, they're no different from anywhere else. But the one thing about Pakistan, they're so uh, passionate in everything they do. They, I mean, they argue over who, who should open the bowling, you know, with passion. They wear their heart on the sleeve. So yeah. you know, very often you're in the dressing room, there's shouting and, and of course there's a language barrier because they're all talking Pashto. Yeah. So that becomes an issue. But the one thing is, is their love of the game and really they, they uh, want to win and don't understand when they lose why they lost. And, yeah. uh, because they believe that they, they should win every game of cricket no matter who they play against, which is a good thing. Yeah. But they, it's about just applying the the extra basics and, and getting themselves manoeuvring the game into match-winning situations. I, I mean, just, you, you've obviously done, you've been loved there. You've been loved there. You've obviously, the, the, the connection has been a good one. You, you're still, you're still, like you say, part of the furniture. You're, you're the director of cricket. You work with the A-team. You work with the under-19s. Um, it's, uh, you've got 
talk to me about your director of cricket role. You're also the chief, you're one of the chief selectors as well. I mean, you're you're really a big, big influence in, in Afghanistani cricket. Yeah, it's. Um, I think one of the reasons why I've been put in this position is that to to make sure that it can across the, the country they see somebody who's neutral in a, in a position that's not going to make decisions to to favour people. You know, so you know me. People know me. I am straight down the line. Yeah, uh, I don't pick people because I like them or I don't like them or anything else. And that's yeah. one of the things I think they wanted someone to come in who could not be accused of being parochial, could not be accused of being one-sided towards, you know, the Pashtuns or, yeah. or anybody else. Just yeah. come in and make, I mean, I, I live by the mantra, just make cricketing decisions for cricketing reasons. Yeah. And that's, that's all I keep saying to them. You know, when I, when I leave somebody out of a squad or, or when I pick a squad, you know, they get very passionate. They want to play because in this, I just say, in this, the way that you've played before and on, the, on, the, on your record, um, we need to bring younger players in. We can't stand still, and we've, we've got to keep moving forward. We can't, we can't stand still. Um, and I think it would be difficult. It would be harder for one of the locals to make some of the, the changes I've made because they, they could accuse them of making decisions to favour certain people. Where, although some people have tried to like put that label on me, it doesn't, it doesn't, it doesn't wash for very long because they all know at the end of the day that I'm just a person that makes a decision for what's for the good of Afghanistan cricket. You know, and, and to be fair, um, it, it gets a bit difficult at times, but the Afghanistan Cricket Board, the chairman and the CEO have been very supportive. Um, and we all have a, um, you know, a goal that we want to push to. And that's just to make the just simple thing, just make the cricket, the cricket better in, in the country, step by step. What's the future just on that front? What, what's, the, what's next for Afghanistan? What, what, what's your aspirations? What, what do you want to see Afghanistan do? Well, the, I mean, the national side, obviously, has got to be more consistent. Um, we've got the Asia Cup, I believe, is now going to take place in Sri Lanka. So yeah. we'll, we'll play in that. I'm not so sure about the World Cup. We were looking forward to playing in that, a T20 World Cup. But I think I've heard, seen things on uh, social media that maybe that might not happen until next year now. But yep. they're still RCC are still debating that. But the biggest thing for me is is in the test cricket, for the national side, test cricket and in one day cricket, we need to get more consistent. We're really we're a dangerous cricket team mm-hmm. because we're not consistent. Mm-hmm. Where so that's that's so Lance Kluzer is the head coach and he's in charge of that and he's working with that. Mm-hmm. My my role as a coach now is with the A team and the under twenty threes, is to make sure we have our younger players come through. <clears throat> learn about playing in different um, conditions around the world so that they put pressure on the, on the t- players in the natural side so we can keep improving because we have got good young players. Well, I've seen, we that, the the I've seen that under-19 World Cup, some yeah. phenomenal players coming through. Yeah, we've, got, you know, we've got some really talented players, but the thing is, in the past, they haven't been able to move through, so they get hit a bottleneck and we lose players. Mm-hmm. So the difficult thing is that I've got to... For the good of moving forward, I'm going to bring some of these young players into the national side, and obviously to do that, I've got to leave out some of the some of the senior players, and they're not too keen on that happening. So, you know, that's where it comes down to. I'm sorry, I've got to make a decision that's for the for the good of the country in the next three four years, not not for this series we're going to play just today. Mm-hmm. Great to great to hear. Now, the next thing we're going to talk to you about, Mola, it's obviously well documented. Recent times, I, I only found out about a month ago myself, was really 
sad to see, um, but I was also inspired by my, my old coach, and I was proud of you, that in April 2020, Muller, unfortunately, um, you had to have your, your leg amputated from the knee down. Talk to me about how what, what led to those events. All right, so it all started about seven or eight months ago in um, Abu Dhabi, um, where I had a blister on the sole of my foot after training one day, and which got infected. And yeah. over the next five months or so, that was treated and it got better and it was just about 100% here. So I thought I was over the hurdle. And then a separate infection on the side of my uh, big toe, which I found out now is an MRSA infection. We're not quite sure where it's come from, but I had this MRSA, which is a bug that is, that is uh, resistant to antibiotics. So I went into hospital here. They tried to treat it, but they couldn't stop the bug. And it was basically, for want of a better description, eaten away my little toe on my left foot. So they amputated the little toe um, in, the, in the hope that they cut away all the infection and it would get better. But unfortunately, the infection was a bit deeper in, in the foot. So over the next two weeks, I was in hospital, they drained, drained the wound and cut a little bit more flesh away. But unfortunately, on the 4th of April, the, 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 the main uh, foot specialist came to see me after he'd come to see me to give me a second opinion. And he said, unfortunately, the way that the infection was going, it needed to be stopped or else it would spread in either a septicemia or worse, it spread up my leg and I have to have my whole leg amputated. So he said to me at 7.30 in the morning on a Saturday morning, um, his advice uh, and, and direction would be for me to have the, the leg amputated just below the knee. Um, so and I just said to him, look, he said, what do you think? I said, well, I... I wouldn't expect you to tell me how to play forward defensive. I'm not going to tell you how to cut somebody's leg off. I said, if that's really the where you tell we're at, then let's just get it done. And at 12.30 that afternoon, I was wheeled down to theatre. And at four o'clock, I woke up and I only had half a leg. How did you, how, how did you, how did you, how did you deal? How have you managed to, I mean, I don't want to get you emotional. That's not what I'm looking to do, but how can you, how did you deal with that at the time? How, well, you, you must have been in shock. Well, I can tell you, uh, it sort of prepared me two or three days before saying, this isn't looking good, but hopefully the antibiotics will kick in. But, you know, if it, if it doesn't work, we're going to have to talk about amputation. And I said, yeah, yeah, it'll be all right. Don't worry. And he said, yeah, let's hope so. So he sort of planted the seed. Mm -hmm. And then when he, when, he, when he actually did tell me, he um, came to me and said that, uh, you know, we need to do this. For half an hour, when he left the room for half an hour, I felt sorry for myself, you know, and I, I rang my dad and Tim Munton, who's a, a friend of mine, and um, my partner, Megan, to say, look, you know, here we are. We've actually got to this point that we didn't think would arrive because I spoke to them. I said, it's happening today. Mm -hmm. And I felt sorry for myself. And then it suddenly hit me, you know, well, really, I mean, you talk about, you spoke about, about Matthew Maynard and you losing your son, really. I've, I've lost half a leg. Really, what on earth have I got to feel sorry about? In the great scheme of things, I've just lost half a leg. So what? Does, I'm lost. Nobody's removed my brain. Nobody's extracted my cricket knowledge from my body. All that's happened is, a, and I've started walking on the prosthetic leg now. Um, and I've got to learn to do that. It'll probably take another six weeks before I get fully mobile. Then I'm back out there coaching again. Yes, it, it, it's been traumatic. It's been hard work. 
But in the great scheme of things, when you look around the world, this terrible virus we've got at the moment, I mean, people are losing their lives. People are losing their loved ones. And I reiterate, I've lost half a leg. It's not nice, but it's not the end of the world. And I refuse to be treated as if it's the end of the world. So, you know, I've, um, I've turned it into a little bit of a positive by uh, the, the Professional Players Trust mm -hmm. uh, in England uh, has helped me financially. I mean, this leg's cost me 10 grand pounds, all in all. Um, so they've had, so I'm, I'm doing a charity right I've got to get on to two and a half thousand pounds already. And I know some other people are, are going to put some in that I know about. So we will be up to about three, three and a half thousand pounds. Mm -hmm. um, and I'm doing a, a weekly sort of um, blog, if you like, video, which I, I send across, which will go on, uh, which you'll see now. Yeah. I'll go on just saying how I'm getting on and showing uh, where I am. I'm up to... I'm up to, up to about uh, one and a half k's, something like that. Well, good for you. Really nice. So, yeah. you know, it, it's going to be a challenge. It's not easy. I've got a bit of pain in my in my left knee from where where the the leg fits into the into the into the socket into the prosthetic leg. Yeah. Uh, it's like wearing a brand new pair of shoes and the kick rubs and it's sore at times, but you've just got to keep going. Yeah. So how so how so how how do you train walking on on that molar? What are you doing with yourself to kind of get used to to walking with it? How do you how do you, you said it would take you probably about six weeks? So what kind of stuff do you do to get yourself prepared? Well, I've got um, I've got like a Zimmer frame, so I use that because the last thing I need to do is to trip over and fall forward. Yeah. So I've got a Zimmer frame and I, and I just walk around the block here. It's four hundred meters around my block, and some days I do two hundred meters, some days I do four hundred meters. Yeah, I just add it up as we go, and it's just just main things just gaining confidence mm -hmm. because it feels strange, you know. There's nothing there. You've got you've got a leg you can't feel. Yeah. Um, so it's just gaining confidence to be that, that it's fine and that you can be mobile. Listen, um, it's you know you've you're, it's, it's, it's your whole story, Mola. You've been a fighter from uh, from day one. You were a gritty opening batsman. You're, uh, you know, you, you taught me so much in my, in my brief time getting to know you. I learned so much from you. I always talk, anybody asks me, you might even have seen on Facebook recently, all these people are doing these selection things about who's this guy, who's their favourite batsman, who's the, and I put you down as, as my favourite coach. Um, so I'm, I'm really proud of you. Um, I'll be following your blog. Um, if there's anything I can do sponsorship-wise to try and grow grow things in Scotland for you and get you more get you more back uh, on that on that just just try and talk to all the people up there that um, are, like, obviously like having me around. It's uh, quite simple. Go to um, Just Giving forward slash Andy Moles and take you straight. And the money goes straight into the Professional uh, Cricketers Trust. Goes straight into that. So, it's, so just, just giving. Just giving forward slash Andy Moles, it'll take it take it to there. Um, the idea is you, is you walk ten k's or run or swim, but you don't have to do that. I'm go, I'm going to do that for you. If okay. anybody out there feels that they can contribute for this great charity, then it'll be you know, received with thanks. Thank you. Well, no, I'll be putting that. I'll be putting that out. I'll be putting that out this evening, Moller, and uh, looking to try and get people get people on board. Listen, you stay strong. Keep inspiring people. Um, and keep you know, the bright future still ahead. I look forward to seeing what you do with Afghanistan cricket next. Um, and maybe we can talk again someday down the line and, uh, on my podcast again. Anytime, mate. Lovely to see you again and, and best wishes to everybody up there in Scotland. Thanks, Mola. You take care. God bless you. Thank you. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.